following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Do you ever get scared when you go to a new place or when you see a lot of unfamiliar people in a crowd, you get caught in a strong gust of wind outside that seems like it's going to blow you over? Or when the lights go out, either at bedtime or some other time of day? Well, what do you do in those moments when you're scared? I'll tell you what I used to do when I was but a lad. I would close my eyes maybe hide under my covers, but more often than not, what I would say is, Mom! Dad! Come here! I would cry out for my parents. Now, why why would I do that? And boys and girls, I'm sure, in fact, I know for a fact that most, if not all of you, have done that at some point in your short lives. In fact, I've heard at least five of you do that in my life. Um, But why do we do that? Why is that our instinct? It's because we know that our moms and our dads or our guardians, our grandparents, older brothers and sisters, those who are around us in our families, we know that they are the people who love us most, that those are the people who are most interested to keep us safe. And so that instinctual cry for your parents or your loved ones when you're scared, that's actually a very smart and wise thing to do. It makes all the sense in the world. And you know what? That pretty good thing to do in our own daily lives when we get scared about the things around us, it's precisely what Christ taught his disciples and us to do in our text this morning. As we continue working through the Lord's Prayer here in Matthew 6, that that model prayer that Christ gave to his disciples and gave to us in the middle of his great uh, sermon on wise and righteous kingdom living, we're considering now the second petition in the Lord's Prayer, found in the first half of verse 10 here. Your kingdom come. And what I'm saying is that's a cry for help, a cry for deliverance, a cry from a weak person who's in danger, who is scared, to a very powerful being, an invincible and eternally and an an infinitely powerful being who loves us as a father to help and to save. Uh, What do we pray for in the second petition? The shorter catechism puts it this way, very helpfully. In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. This is great vocabulary for us to incorporate in our own prayers, isn't it? Destroy the kingdom of Satan. Extend the kingdom of grace. Bring in the kingdom of glory. Well, as we can see from both Christ's direction, our, our, your kingdom come in verse 10, but also in the pattern of sound words in our shorter catechism given to us here, as I've just said, the church must pray fervently for God our King to exercise His rule in the world. That's what I'm going to seek to show you this morning from our text. The church must pray fervently for God our King to exercise His rule in the world. We'll proceed to dig into the church's kingdom prayer this morning uh, in three parts under three headings. The motivation for kingdom prayer, the matter of kingdom prayer, and the fulfillment 
of kingdom prayer. Motivation, matter, and fulfillment of kingdom prayer. Let's start with motivation. The motivation for kingdom prayer we can consider kind of in, in, in three uh, little subparts here. First, our world and its condition. Then our second, our situation in our world. And thirdly, our hope as we, as we make this prayer, as we cry out for help to God. Our world, much like a room in which the lights have gone out and gone dark, is a very dark place. It's a world uh, suffering, laboring under the curse, the righteous curse of God for Adam and Eve's sin. That is, it's a world that is filled with sin and misery, with all manner of pain and hurt and conflict. All you have to do is watch the news for two minutes to figure that out, or just sit and reflect, even on your own life. And the trials and the difficulties you face in your body, in your spirit, in your relationships. Indeed, the world is filled with sin, isn't it? Ecclesiastes 7.29, the, the wise preacher says, Behold, after he's investigated the world and he's tried to interact with it in all kinds of ways, he says, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. They've been bewitched and deceived and they've fallen into sin. And Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, uh, Paul writes under inspiration of the Spirit, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. He says you were dead according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Even as Paul is describing the condition that we'll consider in just a second, he's making commentary about the world around us into which we've been born and in which we live. It's a dark place. It's a place of death and despair apart from the saving work of God. We consider God's creation pure and undefiled by sin, like a, a glass of water. And then sin comes in with, with this little drop of black ink that then slowly, or rather quickly, I should say, spreads through the whole cup and infects all of it. Indeed, to the farthest reaches of space, creation indeed groans under the weight of the curse of God for sin. So what's our situation in this world? Christ has been opening it up for us in his Sermon on the Mount, hasn't he? He says, you're in a world of sin. The angel Gabriel says, Christ, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. What does that tell us about our situation? We're in need of saving, aren't we? We're in trouble. And even as Christians, even having been delivered from the iniquity of our own sins, we're still in trouble because we're surrounded by persecutors. The nations rage against God our King, don't they? And that's exactly our situation, one in which we are opposed by all the forces of the world that we can behold with our eyes, and even some which we cannot see, spiritual forces that work behind those physical realities, and then also our own failures in Christian living, our failures to hunger and thirst after righteousness as we should, our failures to be peacemakers as we are called to be, our failures to be bold and to stand on the truth. And Christ emphasized these two uh, difficulties against us, the world and Satan on one hand, and then our own flesh on the other. And how do you experience these things? Do you have family members who scoff at you, 
who speak ill of you behind your back, perhaps neighbors in your own neighborhood who know that you're a Christian and persecute you. Speaking to a young woman uh, the other day who grew up in another country, and she said in that post-Christian country in which she grew up, she became the patsy for anything that happened at school because she was the only Christian there. She was literally spat upon in high school. Can you imagine that? No one would sit with her because they thought she's the one that's tattling on everybody, telling on everybody. She's the goody-two-shoes Christian girl in our midst. We face persecution like that sometimes in our lives, even in our workplaces to various degrees. And certainly when we consider our brothers and sisters around the world, we prayed for the saints in Asia earlier, the persecution is even unto death. How many have been slaughtered in Afghanistan or China or Nigeria even in just the past year? The flow of blood is deep and wide uh, in the saints and the martyrs around the world. This is our situation. And so what is our only hope? We have but one, if we can speak generally. Our only hope in this dark world, in our present situation, is divine intervention. Supernatural interference by a holy and righteous God. And that's why Jesus says to his disciples, pray, your kingdom come. May your kingdom come. We hope in divine intervention. Jesus would have prayed and sung in the synagogue growing up, Psalm 68, which begins, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those who hate him flee before him. And then at the end, of, of, uh, whenever Aaron ministered, what, what did he pronounce upon the congregation of Israel? And what would have been repeated in the synagogues? What do we repeat here from our pulpit at Antioch? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What are we saying? We're pronouncing a benediction where we're asking God to intervene in your lives, in your affairs, such that then you are blessed and delivered from this dark situation in which you find yourself day by day. In Psalm 67, we turn this over as a prayer, don't we? God, be gracious to us and bless us. Cause his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Our one hope is indeed divine intervention. And this motivates us to pray, your kingdom come. So in considering then the condition of the world around us, our situation in it, and your only hope, the motivation for kingdom prayer should be abundantly clear. You and I simply cannot right the wrongs of the world on our own. By our own efforts. Indeed, we tend to exacerbate the problems of the world when we try to insert ourselves before first turning to God and asking for Him to intervene on our behalf. We tend to make things much, much worse. And so then we pray to God, Your kingdom come. But having set the motivation now, what does it mean? 
What does it mean to pray your kingdom come? We have a little picture from Psalm 67, which I just read. But what does it mean? That brings us to the second heading, the matter, the matter of kingdom prayer, what we pray for. Again, three things. We're praying about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? What is the kingdom of heaven? And we're praying that God would come in and clear out all the debris of this world so that he might build up his kingdom up in its place. And then we're praying especially for the king to come and be with us. So first, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, it's described for us in the shorter catechism, again, with very good words, good vocabulary for us. It's a kingdom of grace and ultimately in its uh, consummated form, when Christ returns, the kingdom of glory. It's a kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory. By kingdom of grace, what are some of the defining features? One, it is inaugurated. It breaks into our world only by the grace of God, God's divine intervention. Again, we don't manufacture it. We don't do anything to deserve it. God himself, out of his infinite grace, indeed, he is grace, breaks into the world to bring out, to bring forth the kingdom of heaven. And then his gracious influence sweeps across uh, men and women and children in our relationships. And we see then an active rule of God in certain places, in certain societies and communities and families and in individual lives. We see order replacing chaos. And here we see the kingdom of heaven breaking in. And certainly in our own personal lives, even in the midst of, of much opposition and persecution, we know the comfort of God by His Spirit in the kingdom of grace. Uh, both in our midst here as a church and, and as Christian families, but also even in our world. So that the Christian, though discontent with the condition of the world in which he finds it, can be greatly satisfied in our God and King who comforts him by his Spirit, even in the midst of tribulation. The kingdom of heaven, at the end of the day, if we really want to distill it down, and, and I think Calvin puts it like this, the submission of men to God in their hearts. That is where the kingdom of heaven is found. It's not found in a monarchy or an aristocracy or an oligarchy or, or com, a commune or republic or democracy or, or any such thing. It's found in the submission of men in their hearts to God. That's where the kingdom of heaven is found. And when we're praying, your kingdom come, we're asking God to do two things. We're asking him first to clear out the site upon which we wish to see his kingdom. To remove the wicked thoughts that reign in our hearts. To remove that root of bitterness and to expose it to the sun of his grace and love and burn it up. And also to tear down any stronghold of sin, either in our own lives, in families, or in the world around us. That's why frequently when we pray uh, our kingdom prayer time, we're praying explicitly for God to destroy the influence of false religions. To tear down the Church of Latter-day Saints, for example. To close up the Jehovah's Witness outposts. To destroy the whole uh, caliphate of Islam. 
or the influence and dark reign of Islam in the Middle East and around the world. We're asking God to to tear down uh, communist and materialist forces and to push back rampant secularism in the West and around the world. We, We pray for those things because we recognize that where anything sets itself in opposition to God, then his kingdom is not there, at least not in fullness. And so we pray that God would clear out like a construction crew, demolishing an old structure in order to make room for the building up of his kingdom, the coming in. Uh, I love how Thomas Chalmers put it in a famous sermon. He called it the expulsive power of a new affection, speaking about the individual submitting to God in his heart. When we, when we are converted we don't hang on to those, those old affections, those old commitments that we had that stood in God's place. We throw out our idols. We cast them into the deep. One of the paint, uh, we have painting going on at Greenville Seminary this week, and I was in uh, the office of a colleague, and there was a painter in there. And I walked in, and the painter was in the middle of telling my colleague uh, this story. The painter's a Christian, not a Presbyterian. That's okay. He's a Christian. And he was telling my colleague about how his niece, who was involved in witchcraft, became a believer. And the first thing she did, they lived on a lake, the first thing she did is she went into her room where she had all her little shrines and trinkets and crazy occult stuff, got it all in a box, and then dumped it into the lake. She got rid of it all. The expulsive power of a new affection, clearing out. So building up can happen. And this is what we're praying for when we ask for his kingdom to come, that he would indeed purify the land. Zechariah 3.9, God makes this promise. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. We're asking for God to remove the land's iniquity. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17, we read this benediction. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word that is in submission to him. May your life then be conformed unto the likeness of Christ and his kingdom. And ultimately, what we're praying for Because we're pneumatic Christians, aren't we? We're filled with the Spirit of God. We believe that God is with us by His Spirit. What we're praying for is not just His rules and His reign, but fundamentally His very presence. We're praying for Him to come and to do this, for Him to be here in our midst. We pray for God not only to intervene, like calling in an airstrike and then withdrawing. No, We're asking him to rush to our aid to make his presence felt and known to each and every one of us and our neighbors and to scoop us up like a mother scooping up her baby in her arms or a father who comes and doesn't just, you know, fix the thing and leave, but comes and speaks tenderly to his children and and sits with them and dwells with them and interacts with them. Remember what Jesus is Two names in Matthew chapter 1 that are given to us. Remember what they are? Jesus, because he shall save his people from their sins. But also what? Emmanuel. Why? What does that mean? God with us. And so the matter of kingdom prayer is that God would clear out the evil things in our lives and in our world 
those sins and anxieties and troubles. But then, not leave us alone, but be with us in, through, and by Jesus Christ and His Spirit in our hearts. That's what we pray for when we pray your kingdom come. So we've considered why we pray this, why Christ gave this petition to His disciples because of the world and their situation and their only hope. We've considered also the matter, what it is they're praying for when, when they say your kingdom come, what it is we're praying for, namely for God to come and to do His work and establish His reign in our midst. And now, I think it's appropriate that we put before us a picture of the fulfillment of this prayer. Because, beloved, remember, whenever we pray for that which God has told us to pray, He's sure to fulfill it. We see the fulfillment of kingdom prayer in the past, in the future, and in the present. But particularly, we see how the King has come, even in this gospel even in the one who's instructing us in prayer, in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that He shall come again. That is the Christian's hope, isn't it? That God is not done intervening in our affairs, but in fact, He's going to come and consummate His work in His kingdom. And then also, we see this in His rule, which shall be fulfilled, even as we pray. So first, the King has come. Christ's first advent and earthly ministry truly and really spiritually brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. Children, I want you to get this because there are Christians in our world today who are very excited for Christ to return, and that's a good thing. But they lose sight of the fact that He came in the first place and did something while He was here. And He saved us from our sins and in so doing established the kingdom of grace on earth. It is vital. It is active. It is moving. Consider what he started with 12 guys. And look at how many people call upon the name of the Lord today. Even if we took conservative figures and we narrowly defined Christian, we're still talking about millions of people. Tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people around the world. The kingdom of grace is going forth. The gospel is being declared. I always... I'm struck with wonder when I consider that we're all sitting here, standing here in, in Greenville, South Carolina, on the other side of the planet from where Jesus ministered uh, in his earthly ministry, walking around Palestine and Judea. And it's amazing that even in just one generation, the followers of Jesus were in Rome influencing and affecting the royal family and troubling the pagan empire of Rome. Indeed, the kingdom of grace is going forth. Christ has come, and he's launched his kingdom efforts. He's inaugurated his kingdom. But the king shall come again. What has already happened in seed form has yet to bear its final fruit. We live in an already not yet kind of tension. And so when we pray your kingdom come, we are praying for something to happen. And what is that? That is that God will intervene again in our affairs as he has done faithfully so in the past. This is sure to happen. Now, just as we shouldn't misunderstand what it is that we're looking forward to, and we shouldn't so become obsessed with the return of Christ that we lose sight of all that he's done and is doing today, 
Yet, at the same time, we shouldn't get so preoccupied with the successes and, uh, of today and of yesteryear such that we forget what it is we're looking forward to. Do you get what I'm saying? Am I being clear? When we pray your kingdom come, this is fundamentally a forward-looking petition. We are looking forward to the kingdom of glory coming. When the trump shall resound and the dead shall be, shall be raised and Christ shall descend upon the clouds, conquering and going forth to conquer. Demolishing, utterly demolishing all the kingdoms, beast, beastly kingdoms of the world and ushering in the kingdom of glory in which we will reign with him. And so we pray with hope, expect in hope, knowing that this will happen. And when that happens, what we're praying for is not only uh, our requisition of great resources in the earth or anything like that, our taking control as Christians. No, that's, that's not really what we're praying for. What we're praying for is for Christ to take control, for the king to rule in our midst. All authority has been handed over to him, yes. And Satan was defeated decisively upon the cross. But our defeated enemy still schemes and moves and seeks to, to consume and destroy, or else Peter wouldn't have haven't warned us about our enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion. And so what Christ will come when he intervenes again in the world as the God-man and as God-king, he will crush his enemies underfoot, and he will rule in their place, and he will rule righteously. What does that look like? His name shall be sanctified, as we looked at last week. His will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven, as we shall consider next week. His rule and reign will be experienced here. His kingdom will be established on earth as it is in heaven, without defect, without any troubles, without any pain or sorrow or conflict between men. He shall provide for his people all that they need. He will declare them free of all sin and misery. He shall acknowledge and acquit them as righteous in his sight on the day of judgment and on the basis of his finished work on the cross. And by his spirit, he will purge away all sin. He will purge away its taint on his people. He will decisively cast the tempter, that evil one, into the lake of fire where he will no longer be able to do harm to the people of God. These things surely will come to pass. And so, in your life now, when you run up against the influence of the evil one, tempting you, trying to distract you from the things of God, or cause you bitterness against those that you love and that love you. Or as he seeks to rile up the nations into furor and to war, such that even some of our sons might be called to go. When those things happen, we could pray your kingdom come with full confidence that whatever tragedy we experience in this life, yet he will reign and it will be good. It will be glorious when he comes again. Boys and girls, when, when we pray thy kingdom come, as we say, we're calling for a mighty God who is able and willing to save us from whatever scares us or hurts us, whatever causes us sadness or sorrow. So Jesus tells us to pray this prayer to our heavenly Father, thy kingdom come. And brothers and sisters, the church must pray fervently for God our King to exercise His rule in the world and in our lives. 
in our hearts. We need to pray this fervently. This is, in many ways, the center of the Lord's prayer. Everything else revolves around this, the coming and reign of Christ in our lives. We cannot opt out of this prayer. We can't. In many respects, if our Father who art in heaven is the foundation of the Lord's prayer, and hallowed be thy name is then the building material out of which the structure is made, thy kingdom come is indeed the keystone holding it all together. Consider the world around you and the sin that so perniciously plagues your own thoughts, words, and works. This is your motivation for kingdom prayer. You have but one recourse, one hope, to go to your knees to seek for God's help in the name of Christ Jesus who has come to save his people from their sin. And what shall you pray for? Well, beloved, what is the matter of kingdom prayer? It's that God in Christ would come conquering by word and spirit, not by sword and firearm, but by word and spirit, all his and our enemies. That he would clear out all that opposes him and his purposes in the world today and strengthen you in virtue and holiness. That his name would be sanctified as his people are built up in him as a temple in which he shall dwell. Are you praying even now that he would come by his spirit to dwell with you in fuller measure, in your private devotions, in your family devotions? And certainly, I hope you're praying this for our church here as it grows and gets off the ground and and for the broader church around the world. Consider the fulfillment of such prayer as we have. Beloved of God, expect that he who has come shall come again to judge the living and the dead as a righteous king, full of justice and mercy, truth and grace. And when he rules, he shall rule righteously. He will reverse the curse and its effects far as it is found as he raises up his renewed humanity, men and women, you and me, those of us who call upon his name in faith from every tribe, tongue, nation, and family under heaven to glorify the Father in the power of the Spirit and according to the Word. Brothers and sisters, we must pray your kingdom come. We have to. This is not mission impossible. This is mission critical. We must do this. And we must do so with great fervency, with zeal, with hope, and expectant joy in the power of His Spirit. So let's stand for prayer now. Our Father in heaven, as we come and make our approach to your table this morning, we do pray your kingdom come. We pray that your kingdom would come in holiness and in truth, by word and by spirit. That Christ would be glorified as the everlasting King who reigns in our midst as the head of his church. We pray that you would continue to advance the kingdom of grace until the kingdom of glory comes in. And we pray that you would haste the day. And above all things, we pray that your name would be sanctified, that you would be exalted in our lives, even as you strengthen us day by day and week by week in your service. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.